Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men, uh, sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is warning cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. I don't know that there is another book in the entire Bible that so nearly details what is going on in our world and in our society today than the book of Ecclesiastes. Here we have the account of a man who was obsessed with gaining knowledge and obsessed with gaining wisdom. I believe he thought that knowledge would produce wisdom, and I will say something about that in a moment. But it seems like from what he says in this book of Ecclesiastes that that desire for knowledge almost became his God. And so he almost worshipped it, and it eventually produced disappointment in his life. I think we have people in our society today who are similarly obsessed I think there are people that just assume that the more they know about life, the wiser that they're going to be. They'll have a greater wisdom than other people if they know a whole lot. In fact, there was a TV network, which years ago, I don't know if they're still doing it or not because I don't watch the major networks anymore, except maybe for a sporting event. But there was a TV network that used to have this little catchphrase that show their emblem and say, the more you know. The more you know. Well, I know that the more you know, the worse you can be sometimes. And so it doesn't necessarily bring wisdom. Some believe that the accumulation of human knowledge will lead them to understand where the creation of the universe came from. I've got news for them. Only godly knowledge will lead you to that understanding. You can listen to all the theories. You can listen to the Big Bang Theory. You can listen to what Darwin said, and you will be led astray. But if you'll go to Genesis 1-1, you'll find out where the universe came from. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And still others are staking their future on science. And that's the thing today. Science, science is going to help us have a better world. Science is going to help us cure disease. Science is going to help us avoid death. But the scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So even though science is good, it is not the be-all and end-all. We live in a culture today that seeks wisdom, but sadly they seek wisdom that is apart from God, that does not follow God, that does not listen to God. And sadly also is that many churches today have fallen right into that trap and they're not immune to that setting aside godly wisdom and following man's wisdom either. And then there are those, I mentioned chapter 2 a moment ago, then there are those who followed Solomon's approach that he did in chapter 2. And here's what he sought. He sought meaning of life in pleasure. He sought meaning for life in people. He sought meaning for life in projects. He sought 
meaning for life and all of these other things, possessions and prominence and things like that. And he found it wasn't there. He says, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. Now, in our day, as I said a moment ago, knowledge is associated and equated with wisdom. They are two different things. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with knowledge and education. In fact, I encourage young people, you get the best education you can get. For too long, Christian people have been accused of being ignorant, even though they're not, but been accused of not having a good education. And many that I know have great educations. And so we need to show the world that you can be a thinking person, you can be an educated person, and you can know Jesus Christ as Savior, and you can stand for Him as well. There's nothing wrong with education and with knowledge, but we can fill our heads with knowledge, folks. And we can still act very unwisely, and I think we again see that in our world today. One of my favorite philosophers, and I call him a philosopher, he wasn't really, but one of my favorite philosophers, Jerry Clower, said this one time. He talked about some people that are educated beyond their own intelligence. And I think there are people in this world who are educated beyond their own intelligence. You have to be able to use the knowledge that you have. And if you can't use the knowledge that you have, your knowledge really does you little good. I remember years ago, there were people coming out of college, had master's degrees, had doctor's degrees. And the only place they could get a job was at a fast food restaurant making hamburgers. What good was their knowledge doing them? Hopefully, eventually, they found something in their field. But if they were depending upon their degrees to give them purpose in life, folks, they were sadly disappointed when they were working for the fast food restaurants. Wisdom is not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. True, godly wisdom, which is what we need today, is the right use, the godly use of the knowledge that we have. The knowledge that God gives us. In these last few verses, look at what Solomon said. He said that he set his heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. Now that phrase under heaven is the same thing as saying under the sun. We discussed already that Solomon's viewpoint under the sun is that without regard to God, without regard to eternity, without regard to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to seek out to do things that are done upon this earth. In other words, Solomon wanted to learn as much as he could about as much as he could. Okay, he wanted to learn as much as he could about everything. And then in verse 14, he said, this is sore travail. He said, this is a burden. This is a difficulty. And his conclusion of the matter is in verse 18. And we'll get to this. But he says, in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. We're going to talk about that. Just remember, as we read these verses, and especially as we get to verse 16, it was God who had said that he would make Solomon wise, okay? Solomon asked for wisdom, and God said he would give him the wisdom that he asked for. Now, I believe what God did was he gave Solomon the wisdom to be able to lead Israel as a nation, as as their king, but he also gave him the capacity for the accumulation of knowledge. So Solomon not only had the ability to lead a nation, but he had the ability to learn. You know, there's some folks just can't learn. And I'm serious. There's some folks that just can't accumulate knowledge. But God didn't just, poof, drop knowledge on him all of a sudden. But he gave him that ability to learn. 
Now we see in these verses that we just read that Solomon's expecting to find meaning for life. He's expecting to find purpose and joy and hope in life by the accumulation of what he calls wisdom and by the accumulation of knowledge. So first of all, we see in verse 13 what I call his dedication to wisdom. He was dedicated to gaining wisdom and that search for wisdom was sincere. Solomon was very sincere. He said, I gave my heart, I gave my feelings, I gave my will, I gave my intellect to seek out and search some things. That word gave has the idea of committing. He said, I committed myself. Have you ever been committed to a project? you ever been committed to something? Solomon said, I committed myself to learn some things. And we're going to talk about those things in a moment to learn some things about or through wisdom. And again, he's doing it under the sun. Now, what Solomon was doing, he was being a part of what Vance Havner once called the Old Adam Improvement Society. You know, there are a lot of folks that think through wisdom we can improve Old Adam. Through knowledge we can improve Old Adam. The only thing that's going to improve Old Adam is to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And so Solomon is seeking to make people better and himself better. But many people are sincere in wanting to change. And they're sincere in wanting to see mankind change, but they're trying to change man from the outside instead of from the inside. See, the difference between man's approach to doing it and God's approach to doing it is that when God changes you, He changes you inside out. You have a new desire. You have a new heart. You have a new will. Mankind tries to say, let's make things better on the outside. Let's educate people more. Let's give people more money. Let's improve people's standing in the world, and that will improve the heart. No, the change must come first in the heart. And that's what God does. He changes the heart. And then Solomon's search was intense. He said, I sought to seek and to search out. Now, that word seek has the idea of, of following, chasing to seek and to ask. He wants to know. He wanted to learn some things. To search out really has the idea of explore. I want to explore these things. I want to learn something as I look at these things. I said he wanted to know as much as he could about as much as he could. And that's what he's trying to do. But instead of using the resources of God, Solomon sought to be wise and employ worldly wisdom in his search for gaining wisdom for himself. And he soon came to the point, and this is what happened, if you're not careful, he soon came to the point where he began to worship the gift more than the one who gave the gift. And a lot of people are that way. Wouldn't it be great if God's people were as intense about learning God's word and God's will and about learnings about salvation and dedication and faithfulness to God, if they were as intense on learning those things as Solomon was? on learning and, and gaining wisdom about all things done under the sun. And sadly today, so many in our world show little interest in those things. Solomon's search was also all-inclusive. He said he sought to seek out all things that are done under the heaven. I said that's the same as saying under the sun. He wants a wisdom, but it's the wisdom that excludes the appreciation of eternity, the appreciation of God, the appreciation of heaven, the appreciation of the promise of the Messiah. He wants a wisdom that is actually gives no true answer to the meaninglessness of life. If you listen to people today, there's so many. And I say again, this, if you just 
knew of all of the calls that are coming in on a daily basis about people who have decided are talking about ending their own lives. You know what's happened? Suddenly life is meaningless to them. They see no point in it, and they see no desire in it. Then Solomon says, This sort travail hath God given the sons of men to be exercised therewith. He's talking about a burden, a burdensome task that Solomon's talking about here. In his under-the-sun view, he says all of the accomplishments of mankind, searching for wisdom, searching for knowledge. He says he comes at the end of his life and he says it just amounts to nothing. It's meaningless. It is vanity. You know, many people today, even the rich and the well-off and, and the famous, are searching for things today and they can attest. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. They can attest to the emptiness of life under the sun. We're familiar, I hope you are, with H.G. Wells. He wrote War of the Worlds. I was going through some things the other day, and there I had a book called The Time Machine, said by H.G. Wells. And so he wrote a lot of science fiction novels. But listen to what H.G. Wells said. At age 61, I have no peace. All life is at the end of a tether. 61 years old, successful as a writer. How many movies have been produced from his books? And so he comes to this point in life, and he just said, there's no peace in my life. Lord Byron, now he was a poet. If you don't remember your English literature from your high school days, he wrote this, My days are in yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of life are gone, the worm and the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Sad. Sad to come to that point. Ernest Hemingway, he lived a life that most people would envy. Adventure and all of those things. He said, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio when the batteries are dead and there's no current plugged into it. And one day, one Sunday morning in Idaho, he put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Now, we're not talking about common people. We're talking about people that the world would look at and say, they've made it. They're famous. They have position and they have prominence. And yet, they came to that point in life. They said, it's absolutely worthless it's absolutely nothing and in fact if you look over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 the scripture says that this emptiness that we see this incompleteness apart from God is also found not just in mankind but in the entire creation look at verse 20 for the creature was made subject to vanity not willingly but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope now seeing life under the sun and we see the suffering that life under the sun brings. And we see the oppression that life under the sun brings. We see that life under the sun is infected with injustice. It's infected with crime, with terrorism, with impurity. With all of the things that we can notice about life under the sun, folks. That's not just how things are. That's how sin has made it in this world. So here's what Solomon discovered about wisdom in verses 14 and 15. He declares that all the works that are done under the sun are merely vanity and vexation of spirit. Now vanity, we know, talks about emptiness. Unsatisfactory. Things done apart from God. Things done without giving consideration to God are just meaningless. 
When he talks about vexation of spirit, you know what he's literally talking about? It, it has the thought of grasping the wind, of reaching out and grabbing a handful of wind. It's from a word that talks about herding sheep. And he's saying this, anything that is done without taking God into consideration, without considering godliness and heaven and all of those things in it, he said it's just like reaching out and grabbing trying to grab a handful of wind. Now, obviously, nobody can make the wind do what they want it to do, can they? You know, if I could make the wind do what I wanted it to do, this time of year you get out and you start raking leaves, I'd say, wind, be still. But what happens when you get out and start raking leaves this time of year? I guarantee you the wind's going to blow. About the time you get a pile of leaves piled up, here they come out of the old breeze will blow, and here they come out of the tree. You've got to rake some more. If I could make the wind do what I wanted it to do, in the summertime, I'd say, hey, we need a nice cool breeze. Blow wind. Well, what happens around here in the summertime? <laughs> you know, 100 degrees, 100% humidity and no wind. So we can't make the wind do what we want it to do. And if you could grasp the wind when you opened your hand, what would you have? A handful of nothing. And Solomon says, trying to live without God, trying to live without considering God, is like holding a handful of wind. You really have nothing. And then he says, under the sun wisdom can't change reality. Look at what he says. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. Well, what's he talking about? Here's what Solomon thought. He thought that with his position, he thought that with his power, and he thought that with his wisdom that he had gained from all that he had studied, that he could reform his kingdom and he could make his kingdom that, that he wanted it to be. He could remove it from being crooked. And he found out he couldn't. And so he said, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. I said, we live in a society today that puts such a great value on knowledge. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge unless you rule God out. And when you do that, all of the philosophy and all of the politics and all of the religion without God, there's some religion without God, in this world cannot cure the corrupt nature of mankind. We're trying to legislate righteousness in our nation today. We're trying to enact laws, and we have for many years tried to enact laws that make people act right. And guess what? We're unsuccessful. You cannot, by any law, by any legislation, by any quote-unquote worldly wisdom, force people to treat other people the right way. You know? How does that happen? How do you learn to treat people the right way? The love of Christ, the scripture says, constraineth us. The love of God in our hearts when we know that there's a God in heaven. When we know that people without Jesus Christ are lost and going to hell. And we can look beyond the surface and see the heart. And that that person is lost and that person needs Christ. We will treat them the right way. We will be concerned about their souls. We will tell them about Jesus. Matthew Henry said this, Learning will not alter men's natural tempers nor cure them of their sinful nature, nor would it change the constitution of things in this world. Just because you have education is what he's saying. Just because you have knowledge does not mean you're going to change the world. 
How many generations have set out to do just that? Change the world. And they've been unsuccessful. And then he says, that which is wanting, that which is lacking, cannot be numbered. You know what he's saying? We cannot count what we don't have. We can't count what we don't have. I shared with you, or somebody not long ago, maybe it was a Sunday school class, my children gave me a lesson on negative numbers and taking the square root of negative numbers. Do you know you can't do that? So anytime you take the square root of a negative number, it comes up in the formula as an I, imaginary. And so I learned all about imaginary numbers. And you know what I know today about imaginary numbers? Nothing. Just what I told you, okay? You can't count what you don't have, all right? I mean, I would love to count a big number this morning. But guess what? We've got folks sick. We've got folks out. And we can't count those people that are not here. What's he saying when he says you, what is lacking, what is wanting cannot be numbered? If you don't know you have a need, you don't know how to supply that need. Got that? If you don't know you have a need, then how are you going to figure out how to supply that need? And see, this is the condition of many who are lost today, they don't even know that they're lost. They don't even know they have a need. And they're going through life. Everything's wonderful. Everything's fine. I'm just as good as the next guy. I'm a, a valuable person. I, you know, they can say all sorts of things that they want to say. And they don't realize, no, you have a need. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so part of our job as God's people is to show them, hey, you have a need. And if you die without that need fulfilled, you'll be separated from God for eternity. And so, again, you can't number what you don't have. And then finally, Solomon comes to what I call his disappointment about wisdom. His disappointment about wisdom. By the way, if we look at verse 16, notice the number of times he says, I or my or some form of that. And we're going to read verse 16 again because he says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. Now that just seemed like so much bravado, doesn't it? It just seemed like so much bragging. Solomon saying, Look, here's what I have. Here's who I was. Here's the place that I held. But the truth is, where did he get his wisdom? God had given him the wisdom, and God had given him the capacity for the accumulation of knowledge. 1 Kings 3.12, God said to him, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart. And God had given the ability to Solomon to learn these things. Verse 29 in chapter 4, 1 Kings. Verse 29, God had given him wisdom and understanding exceeding much. Verse 30, his wisdom excelled all those of the east country and, and the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all men. Verse 34, all the kings of the earth came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10 verses 23 and 24 tell us that Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. You talk about making it. <laughs> you talk about being someone that others looked up to. God had given him that. And now we see Solomon saying, I had done this. 
I have done this. Remember what he said in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. What's the point of all that, preacher? Well, it's just this. We need to be careful not to ascribe to ourselves the things that God has given us and the things that God has done for us. People have, maybe we talked in Sunday school about talents, about using our talents for God. Remember, if you have a talent, God gave you that talent. God gave you the ability maybe to sing, to play an instrument, maybe to teach a class. Maybe it's an understanding. I told the class I pastored one man who had the ability just to build things. And anything the church needed done, he was there. He was leading out in the building of it. And so God gives us talents. And if you have a talent, by the way, talents can be improved upon, okay? Take your talent, improve upon that talent. But don't ever say, look what I've done. Say, look what God did. I tell you, and I do it sometimes sort of in a joking fashion, in a tongue-in-cheek fashion to say, because I know a deacon's going to say amen to it, and I've asked everybody else to say amen to it. But I, I know that, folks, I cannot preach. But God in and through me can see. I ascribe it to God. If there's anything good and this person standing before you, it's God that did it. Okay? And that's what we ought to do. And then Solomon committed his heart, he said, to know wisdom and unwisdom. What do you mean wisdom and unwisdom? He says madness and folly. He wants to learn all of the ways of wisdom, and he wants to learn all he can about the way of foolishness, madness and folly. It's possible that a child of God might look at worldliness. Well, I can get involved in that, and it's going to bring me pleasure. It's going to bring me position. It's going to bring me possessions. And a child of God might be overwhelmed by looking that. Folly literally means to act stupidly. And I can say that word because my granddaughter's not here this morning. To act stupidly, it denotes a deviation of the mind from what is true, good, and right, and wise, and prudent. That's what folly is. But he says madness also. Madness implies so great a departure from wisdom, listen to this, that the mind without any control rushes with a blind fury. When someone's filled with madness about something, they don't think about the consequences. They don't think about their testimony as a child of God. They just go hauling off right into it and get involved in it. There was a man named Alexander Pope who said this, and we're familiar with this little quote, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And there are folks who are overcome by folly and overcome by madness and they go rushing in. Remember Demas from... 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. What did Paul say? Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. He quit serving the Lord. He quit helping the apostle Paul, and he went off into the world. Right quickly. I want us to look at the 73rd Psalm for just a moment. I love this psalm because the psalmist is so honest and open. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me... See, he almost got caught up in folly and madness. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He said, I almost got away from God. Why? 
For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever been envious? Don't answer this. You ever been envious of somebody that was prosperous? For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. I mean, he envisions people who don't know Christ as Savior, who he calls wicked here. And he says, look, they got everything the world could offer. And they don't have any problems. On the other hand, here I am as a child of God, and what do I have? Nothing but problems, right? Well, we know where the problems come from. But he he's, says he's jealous of those who have things. Look at verse 11. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my... Look what he's saying. He's beginning to say, I've... Man, I'm following God. Maybe I shouldn't have done it. I cleanse my heart in vain and wash my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. They don't have any problems. I'm the one who has the problems. Maybe I shouldn't have chosen the path or chosen to follow God like I did. Look at verse 16. When I thought to know this, this is what the psalmist is saying. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. If you have ever envied someone who seemed to have it all or admired someone who seemed to have it all and they weren't a saved person, it may have been too painful for you. It may have really hurt. But look at what he says in verse 17 through verse 19. It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. See, when you get right with God, everything fits like it's supposed to. When you get into the Word of God, everything fits like it's supposed to. Oh, I'm envious. But wait a minute. What about these wicked folks? What about these folks that aren't saved? Let them enjoy what they have now because if they never accept Christ as Savior, they're going to suffer for eternity, folks. Don't be envious of a lost man that has a lot. Just be thankful for what God has given you. He says, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? Now, which walk would you rather have? This walk with God that gives you confidence and gives you peace or this walk that the ungodly, that the wicked have, that they seem to have everything but in a moment's notice. They could lose it all or they die and leave it all behind. How many saved people, how many maybe brothers and sisters in Christ do we know that have turned their backs on God and godliness for the foolishness of the world? I'm going to tell you how many, generally speaking, more than we've got here this morning. People who are members of this church who for whatever reason has left God and godliness, maybe even to follow the foolishness of the world. But Solomon says, again, here in this verse, he says all of his chasing knowledge and wisdom, he says in verse 17, he said this is grasping at the wind. It's vexation of spirit. And then he comes to the disappointing conclusion in verse 18. In much wisdom... 
is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Do you know that sometimes in the world, and following worldly wisdom, here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn things we'd rather not know. Isn't there something you know that you'd rather not know right now? I can think of things that I know that I wish I didn't know. The cruelty of people. The suffering of people. The presence of violence in this world. The presence of crime and, as I said, terrorism in this world. That's one reason I avoid the news, folks. John Addison one time said, he said, thought that secondhand cigarette smoke was less harmful than watching the news every day. You know, that, that's how bad the news is. And then we may learn something about people that will change our perception of those people. I read an example of it by one preacher. He said, you know, you go to a church, and when you go to a church, you have, you've been there just a short time, you've got this perception of everybody, and the longer you stay there... <laughs> Sometimes your perception has changed. Someone said this, ignorance is bliss. And sometimes it is. And folks, sometimes I'm the most blissful person in the world because I love about certain things being ignorant. Many times the gaining of knowledge and the gaining of wisdom will also lead us to find out how much we don't really know in this world. And what does Solomon say about it? He says, it is much grief and it increases sorrow. I'm not saying we need to stay ignorant. I said at the outset, we need knowledge. We need education. We don't need to go around just waking up like a goose every day and just don't even know what's going on. We don't need to be that. But I tell you what, there's a knowledge and a wisdom that goes far beyond this world's knowledge and this world's wisdom, and that is the knowledge and the wisdom of God and His Word. There are a lot of technical names that can be applied to the methods that we use to pursue knowledge and wisdom, but there's really only two that could be applied. There's the man-centered approach, and there's the God-centered approach. Now, man-centered wisdom is described in the third chapter of James. James chapter 3, verse 14, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. That's what James says about man's wisdom. Now James also describes godly wisdom in verse 17 in that third chapter. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's God-centered wisdom. Now much of Ecclesiastes is written from the man-centered wisdom approach. And you know what man-centered wisdom does? Man-centered wisdom attempts to take the things that we experience and the things that we like and mold the Word of God to fit our lives. That's what man-centered wisdom... Sadly, that's the approach of many who profess to be children of God today, and that's the approach of many that claim to be churches of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We're just going to mold the Bible to fit where we are. That'll make everything all right. But Solomon said that's a burden. He said that's a grief, that's a sorrow. In the God-centered approach to true wisdom, here's what happens. We mold our thinking and we mold our living to fit the Word of God. That's the God-centered approach to wisdom. 
It's the one that will be profitable. It's the one that will bring purpose. It's the one that will bring hope. It's the one that will bring joy into our lives as children of God. And James's concluding statement in James chapter 3 and verse 18 is this. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. See, God's wisdom will lead us to be peacemakers and peaceable people. We're all following some approach to wisdom. We're either following mankind's approach to wisdom or we're following God's approach to wisdom. And as we follow one or the other, our lives are going to be directed thereby. So the question is, which approach to wisdom are you following today?